You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome to another episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. This episode features a panel discussion between Seven Mile Bankers that was held as part of a Carnegie Mellon series. Each of our industry bankers will discuss the impacts of COVID-19 on their target industry areas, as well as reflect on key questions that were submitted by guests prior to the recording. If you or a colleague have additional questions regarding impacts to the M&A market due to COVID-19, I encourage you to reach out to contact at sevenmileadvisors.com. So with that, I will send it over to Andy Johnston, one of the partners at Seven Mile, who is going to be leading this panel discussion today. Thanks, Ariel. Hey, everyone. Very nice to be speaking with you virtually, and we appreciate the time and opportunity to tell you a little bit more about what we're seeing in the market. We've got some questions collected from folks that registered, so we appreciate that, and we're going to tailor the conversation to those topics. So first, I'll start with a quick introduction. I'm Andy Johnston. I'm one of the founders of our firm, Seven Mile Advisors. Our firm is a mergers and acquisitions advisory firm. We're focused on middle market merger and acquisition deals. So that includes total company sales, capital raises, buy side services. So we do have select buyers that we work with to help them find acquisitions to help grow their business. And we deal with strategic buyers, which would be corporations looking to execute acquisitions as well as private equity groups, so institutional capital providers. And that includes equity and debt. So we'll talk a little bit more about that topic. I think debt's become much more of a focus in this environment than perhaps it ever was. And then in terms of our client profile, we have with us today three of my colleagues who will represent three of the most popular industry categories that we work with. That includes IT services, consumer, and healthcare. So part of this conversation We'll be alternating between those industries, but we're also going to discuss themes that we're seeing across all clients and corporate relationships that we've got in the market. Just some other quick facts. Almost everyone on a typical day is in the Charlotte office, a picture of which you can see behind me. But we also have folks in Florida and Pittsburgh. And we've got, fortunately, on this call, folks representing all three locations. From a a client standpoint, our clients ended up being all over the world, frankly. Most are in North America. However, we have several in Europe and several that have multiple locations in different countries, including Asia, Europe, North and South America. So hopefully that global perspective is helpful here as we talk about the market as we see it. So why don't we move to you, Mark Landry? You can give the audience a little background about yourself. We can talk a little bit about your industry focus. Sure. Uh, My name is Mark Landry. I'm a managing director with Seven Mile. I spent uh, a couple decades uh, managing Unilever around the world, leading many of their changes. So change uh, such as uh, COVID uh, is inducing. I've had a chance to see whether that's been geopolitical change or crises such as this. I then spent 10 years. uh, I did a management buyout from Unilever and built a consumer business. In the last five years, I've spent... uh, as a CEO of a technology business. So I have an opportunity to bring to you a, a per, perhaps a, a longer view than most and certainly a, perhaps a broader one. 
as I look at our consumer space, I think the first thing we all have to grapple with is what behaviors amongst consumers are, are being influenced in the midst of this crisis. And most importantly, which of those behaviors will be enduring? So it's, it's quite easy to see that we all became more aware of hygiene in its simplest form, washing our hands, cleaning surfaces more often, et cetera. We become more aware of, of social distancing. We become more aware of areas where we would have just easily been involved in before. But now we're seeing not only this, but in the absence of COVID, we were putting ourselves perhaps at more risk than we thought. So from that, I think a consumer behavioral standpoint, it is uh, incumbent on us, not only from the M&A perspective, but ours all emanates from what is the entrepreneurial world? What is the institutional world? What will their, their responses be? And while they will be many, I think I'd like to focus on uh, perhaps three. If you're a manufacturer of consumer products, I suspect you're going to be looking at many, many ways of, of enhancing your various product lines, particularly if you're in the personal hygiene areas or in the industrial cleaning spaces, et cetera. The other redeeming one, there's two uh, that come to my mind. E-commerce is one that pre-COVID was already experiencing enormous growth. As we all know, the digital marketplace has been experiencing enormous growth, much to the chagrin of brick and mortar. In large measure, that's been enabled by low barriers to entry. There's been a very professionalized ecosystem, which is comprised of contract manufacturing capabilities and digital marketing consultants and specialty packaging companies and third-party logistics. So on the one hand, we're going to see a transformation in the appetite for e-commerce. So I, I easily would express that as I am a user of e-commerce. Through this crisis, I would say that their share of my wallet has increased out of necessity. So I'm buying other things through e-commerce beyond what I was doing before. I suspect, while not entirely, much of that will endure. I will have found that I'm pleased with the service. I like the convenience of it. So my share of wallet will grow in the e-commerce space. But perhaps the larger constituent is those who have heretofore not ventured into the digital market space. They, out of necessity, will have been taught. I'm going to probably characterize them as the elderly generation. Not that I would know anything about that. And I would say that they have now learned that they can get a lot of their needs through e-commerce. Now, Many of them probably use brick and mortar as a socializing vehicle for them or getting out of the house, but they will have learned that many things they are now buying on e-commerce are, are easy. They're satisfied with the response. The turnaround is quite good, and those behaviors will endure. So as we look at the consumer space, we look at e-commerce, it is very clear that that is not a situational bump. It's going to have an enduring uptick which is building an already a fast-growing uh, environment. So these are areas that any companies that are relying on e-commerce to get their products to market or any companies that are have built business services to install and enhance and, and improve the productivity of e-commerce, that whole area is going to become much more, much frothier in the future. The much bigger area, however, is I think the supply chain. 
And I think simply put, I think we've all been exposed now, the underbelly of the supply chain and our dependence on singular locations such as China for health products. You know, I think I've heard of statistics, 95% of OTC drugs or critical elements within them are being supplied out of, out of China. When this hit, of course, the interruption of that, not only at its source can be manufactured, but then the timelines to have them, once they come up and run, you're looking at 9, 10, 12 weeks by the time product gets manufactured, loaded, put on a ship, et cetera. Now, one could say, okay, that's going to influence Ben's area, the healthcare area. But I would suggest to you that most CEOs now will be revisiting their supply chain and saying, well, maybe my supply chain wasn't interrupted because of this particular event. But it teaches them that you're not always in control of all the areas that influence your business. So I think you're going to see a great deal of domestication of the supply chain or nearshoring at best. I think that the digital marketplace is growing, has spawned a consumer that's very informed. I think consumers will be more aligned to buying made in the U.S., uh, as we saw for a period of time, an extended period of time, post 9-11, et cetera. So I think we're going to see supply chain on a broad scale be influenced towards domestic. And that's going to open up an entire front for the, the M&A world, because I don't think CEOs will revisit whether they should own manufacturing or third party it. I think what they will revisit is the locations of their third party supply chain. So I would say that there's a whole lot of things, Andy, we could talk about. But if I could leave three messages, one would be what consumer behaviors are changing in the midst and which of those will be enduring. And that will breed opportunity. And I would say the two areas of opportunity and I say opportunity because change breeds opportunity, will be any business, service, or technology associated with e-commerce will have a different landscape coming out of this than they did before. And the whole area of the consumer ecosystem around supply chain is also going to be fundamentally changed on an enduring basis. So I would leave it at that. Thanks. Helpful. I think we could also say at a high level, the firm has seen amongst our clients who are in a process now, those that are focused on e-commerce enablement are definitely seeing strong interest. And there seems to be a, a consensus forming amongst buyers and investors that that is going to have uh, long-term growth. And, and much of it driven, as you said, by traditional brick and mortar models being forced to convert on a timeline they never expected uh, for e-commerce for the foreseeable future. Which leads us to IT services. Garth, my name's Garth. I started my career with Grant Thornton's transaction advisory practice and subsequently transitioned over to, to Seven Mile and work as a, a vice president where uh, I really help on deal execution and, and deal support. Uh, and I spend probably 80% of my time in the IT services space. And as we think about IT services, really what that means to us, it was a little a sector that I, I was fairly unfamiliar with before I started at Seven Mile, but it's really a sector that helps enterprises maximize the use of enterprise technology. So our clients are helping to enable and make software work for the enterprise. And that might mean remote work solutions, 
cloud solutions. Think Google and Microsoft, Microsoft Office 365. It's, it's making those solutions work at multinational global enterprises. There's a lot of interesting stuff that has to go on in the back end to make those solutions work. And then there's a lot of ongoing support that needs to happen to make those things work over time. So that's, that's where I spend most of my time today. I think Mark pointed out some, some really interesting stuff that's going on in the market, and, and I would echo a lot of what he said. So I'm working on a, a couple clients right now that, that work in the e-commerce space. So their, their focus is less on just the pure consumer side and more so on making tech solutions work, enabling e-commerce. So they might be building the websites, integrating those websites with, with payment plans, PayPal, and different things like that. And then networking or kind of managing the, the inventory side of things. That's an area that we've radically seen an uptick in and, and, and more focus. I think through this situation, this is really exaggerated the transition to, to e-commerce as one and then cloud cloud solutions as kind of a number two. You know, we're we're using Zoom right now, Google Hangouts, any type of remote solutions, any type of cloud-based applications that enable employers to to have their their people continue working from home. Those are all areas that are dramatically picking up and seeing a lot of interest. And they haven't really seen a, a huge downturn in their business. Some they on on some hands they have they have some clients that, that are struggling and, and struggling to pay and maybe pushing those projects off, but it's it's on the other hand accelerating some of their other clients. So I, I'd say that's that's one area. So it's really just exaggerated the the digital transformation as a lot of people coin the term, which in cloud and, and e-commerce those are those are two really, really key areas. I think just just some things to to point out what we've also seen, especially from like a private equity community as well as a strategic is Strong contracts are just becoming ever more really critical. Having really tight contracts, having long-term contracts where organizations can't pull back for three to six months and push projects continually to the right, that, that becomes ever so apparent. And, and you really, really see the value in, in long-term license agreements and long-term contracts and why that's so critical. So I think that's, that's another area you're getting some firms are really drilling into to what types of contracts you have. And then I guess my last point would be just as, a, as an overarching theme. A lot of our clients are just, uh, I think, the best clients that we have are continually checking in on their client base and having just a constant dialogue as to, hey, what, what's going on? Are you, are you hanging in there? How, how does this project look? Are we still on the right timelines? Do we need to reduce our budget? Do we need to rethink the staffing levels that we have? And I think our best clients that have really weathered this pretty well are, are, are in constant communication with their end client to make sure that they're doing whatever they can to kind of quickly adapt because it's, it's kind of a, a something that's changing on a daily basis. So that's, that's a little bit on IT services. Thanks. I think to your point, Garth, we've definitely seen an increased focus on managed services over project-based services in the, in the IT services space. So to your point about contracts, we know some folks say they do managed services and, and they think of it that way, but we've seen buyers and investors really take a hard look at things like breakup causes, termination fees, true right of termination of the other side from a contractual standpoint. And then I think from a business model standpoint, 
just thinking through the challenges of a client truly walking away from a relationship. What are the switching costs? What is the transition really going to look like? And to your point, I think they're very much dependent on the end customer vertical. So there's certain client verticals, no matter how good a provider you are or solution you have, if they're suffering from a severe downturn, there's just nothing you can do to keep the revenues going. But there are certain situations where guys are really often focus on their value proposition and in some cases be creative about delaying payments or sliding projects out to work with their clients to maintain a, a longer term relationship. So thank you. All right. Next up is Ben Garver. Ben represents our third vertical focus of healthcare. Ben, I will turn it over to you. Amy, thank you very much. First, I'd like to thank the Swartz Center for hosting us. Big fan of all the work that they've been doing and the contribution they've made both to the entrepreneur environment at Carnegie Mellon, but also the city of Pittsburgh and uh, beyond. I lead our healthcare practice. I came out of Corp Dev at Optum, where I was running M&A for our urgent care business and also working on market development, M&A and hospital partnerships nationwide across all of our care delivery platforms. Uh, the, the points I'm, I'm going to touch on today kind of fall into to two categories. One is the immediate impacts that I'm seeing in, in the market today and how that's impacting our clients and the buyers that we work with, and then broader themes across healthcare. So healthcare obviously is at the, the center of the pandemic, and it's very much the story of both sides of the coin here. So some areas in the healthcare market have been absolutely slammed. Areas that were previously hot for M&A on the healthcare delivery side, so think uh, dental service organizations, ambulatory surgery centers, ophthalmology, any retail healthcare have been impacted just like retail. Revenues are down in urgent care. I'm saying volumes down 50 to 70 plus percent. ASCs are closed, revenues zero. Dental practices are closed, revenues zero. Absolutely uh, being decimated right now. Additionally, in the hospitals, and this impacts companies serving hospitals and selling into health systems, budgets are, are being crushed right now. High margin, ancillary, and elective procedures have all been put on hold. And that work has essentially been replaced at low or no margin services. At the same time, staff utilization has gone into overtime and operating costs have, have skyrocketed. So really, you know, think about what that would mean for your budget as well. The flip side of that is that the digital health, telemedicine, and remote patient monitoring, behavioral health, and the IT services that help with care coordination have all seen an absolute boom in demand as well as investor attention. And this is not going to be a short-term impact. The volume and revenue burst that's happening right now in the wake of COVID is going to absolutely pale in comparison to the long-term trend that's going to result from this change in consumer behavior and institutional change in, in the way our healthcare system is run. So a lot of our attention right now with our clients is to make sure that not only can they take advantage of the opportunity today, but they're able to ride that tidal wave that's coming behind and, and not get pulled over by it. On that point, a lot of deals have been put on ice and are off the market. Some buyers are also have been put on their heels, particularly investment firms that relied on high amounts of leverage as credit is pulled back. Corporates that use stock in their transactions, as well as corp dev departments 
that have onerous or bureaucratic investment committees or underwriting procedures. It's incredibly difficult to underwrite a forecast today. And the corp dev guys are, are getting put in a squeeze where boards, executives, uh, investors, often now, many of them, but the well-capitalized ones, are pushing for increased investment and increased M&A activity. And it's the corp dev teams that are responsible for executing on that that have been put in a squeeze saying, if I bring this into investment committee today, you're, you're going to beat me up. You know, how, how can I underwrite this deal? So that's a, a little bit of the dynamic that we're seeing there. But investors that are well-capitalized, private companies as well as private equity groups that raised capital last year are comfortable over-equitizing up front. They are leaning in and becoming more aggressive. And in those sectors that have benefited from COVID, we are even seeing, in some instances, uh, small premiums over the valuations that we were seeing last year. But generally, those valuations have held. If I could briefly just touch on some of the larger trends that, that we're seeing coming out of this and being accelerated. Like the other sectors, COVID has accelerated trends that were already underway, the most obvious of which is the transition to remote patient monitoring and telemedicine services. Absolutely booming right now. No one ever thought the hospitals of all groups would get on TV and say, don't come in, don't go to your doctor, use telemed instead. This is leading to broad deregulation, which should amplify the, the long-term rate of adoption and overall market size. This also impacts the shift to outpatient care. We're seeing our hospitals being overwhelmed right now. And this also puts attention on the ability to direct patient traffic, coordinate care and referral management so that you can direct patients to the appropriate site of service. Right now, there are people who need care who can't get it because not only do they not have access, but they're being told not to come in. So if we can direct patients to lower cost, high quality, appropriate outpatient sites, that will do better both for the hospital community as well as the patient community. And this all plays into the rise of technology and our staffing shortages that we're seeing at the same time that healthcare workers are in, there, there's a shortage in all spheres, uh, demographic shifts are leading to greater demand. So healthcare has lagged behind the largely for you know regulatory complexities. Other areas like financial services where we've seen an increase in robotic process automation, you're going to see a greater amount of this, not only in patient interaction, so think healthcare chatbots, like you see in consumer and retail right now, but as well as in business process, you know, it's all that paperwork uh, that has to get done, as well as in clinical. So think clinical rules engines and AI right now, very heavy in radiology, but you're gonna see that in more and more clinical use cases where standardization has been a priority for some time now to make sure that all people receive the same quality of care, regardless of where you are and what access you have. So if you're involved in AI, robotic process automation, natural language recognition, uh, and your company does not have exposure to healthcare today, I anticipate you will have a lot of that exposure tomorrow. And that's an area I would focus on. Appreciate that, Ben. And as we kind of dive into some of the questions that have been posed, I'll just stay with you if you don't mind. So I think healthcare probably has a unique set of programs that the government has rolled out in order to try to, some might say stimulate, others might say support or improve their ability to care for patients during this disruption in their business. As you outlined quite well, the most profitable high margin sources of revenue for them have been suspended, while some of the, from an operating perspective, lowest margin or, or least predictable costs have been imposed on them during this pandemic response. What do you think are temporary and maybe longer term 
government programs that have been rolled out that you anticipate changing the sector over time? And, and if you're a buyer and an investor, what would you be looking for in terms of accessing those programs or what would you expect people need to get familiar with if they want to look at opportunities in the healthcare space? Yeah, so there's two areas I'm, I'm going to touch on. One is deregulation and the other is payment reform. So immediately in, in the wake of what's going on right now, uh, including the most recent stimulus bill is funding for hospitals. There was already a disaster of rural hospitals closing, losing access to care that was exacerbated by, uh, honestly, merger and acquisition activity in, in the hospital sector. The budgetary pressure on hospitals right now that, that I touched on has put many at risk, even some of the largest health systems that are being bailed out right now. That's going to lead to an increased focus on, on diversification and really making sure that hospitals are available for critical care, but that they're also being supported appropriately from payments. So payment reform, we're going to see largely in Medicare and Medicaid. We've already seen, like I mentioned with telemedicine, restrictions on access for telemedicine for Medicare has been lifted. So that's a large patient population. And honestly, where we're, Medicare goes, the, the commercial payers follow. But also payment reform. So in telemed, many groups that adjudicate claims, so they, they see a patient and then they submit a claim to an insurance company, have been burning cash because there's deep discounts on both care delivered by lower-level staff, whether that's a, a nurse or nurse practitioner or physician assistant instead of a doctor, and also for telemedicine, but your labor still costs the same. So payment reform, I, I think we're going to see a big change uh, in both who is allowed to provide care and the rates that are paid. From a social standpoint, a lot of the, the most heartbreaking stories we're seeing right now are healthcare workers who themselves are on food stamps and on Medicaid, who are really caught in a tough bind here, think home healthcare workers, who have to put themselves and their patients at risk because they're living below the poverty line. And that's all driven by Medicaid rates. So I, I really do hope that, that we see a, an, an increase in the Medicaid rates now that we realize how critical these staff are. As far as it impacts investment themes, large challenge forever has been getting providers credentialed to practice medicine in all the states that a multi-state platform operates in. We're seeing those restrictions lifted now as different states reach crisis levels and need access to clinicians and physicians regardless of where they come from. That will make it easier to grow large private equity-backed multi-state platforms. So recruiting should be easier. The delivery of care should be easier. And I think we'll also see rates increase there as well, as well as seeing lower-level physicians, lower-level care providers being able to deliver the same access, the same services, but with rate parity with, with physicians. We should also help address the staffing shortage. Thank you. So, Mark Landry, I, I will turn our attention to you. So a couple of questions we've received prior to the, the conference starting here was around how to underwrite forecasts for the rest of 2020 and how are buyers and investors thinking about the impact to you know new sales within consumer we could just talk at a high level you know at the end of the day if someone's going to work on closing a deal in the near term in the next 60 90 days are they going to treat what happens in Q1 and Q2 as an anomaly if so, what do you think they're going to do to compensate for that? And I think in consumer, it'd be interesting to talk about, for example, if you were completely dependent on retail, on foot traffic and in-person sales, knowing that's been shut down due to quarantine restrictions, 
would you, as a buyer and investor, look for that to return at some point and kind of put that into your model? Or would you really just rely on them shifting away from that and going to e-commerce or remote sales and remote fulfillment? And I have an hour. <laughs> so <laughs> I think you have to bifurcate the question. So I, I, I recently was listening to one of my um, buddies, Charlie Munger, over at uh, Berkshire. And, you know, he sums it up best, I think, that we always should have had an eye on this anyway. And this is just going to bring it to the fore. What we're judging, I have three companies in market right now. And, and the first thing you have to demonstrate to both the equity and the debt is that their history is fact, that the quality of the business coming into the epidemic, the January and February of 20 and the years preceding it, are the best indications of the quality of the business. And then you turn your eyes to the, the nature of the clients and the market, the broader market they're in. And you have to take a view as to whether that market is going to be returned to normal. I don't think any of us are smart enough to know whether that's a V or a U, but you have to have a view that says that market does return. It's not perpetually impaired. Once you grab a hold of that, so I've got a good business coming into this, the stewards of the business, they have good leadership, the margins are good, they have high quality clientele, they, they have IP, they have differentiators in the business. That doesn't go away because of a short-term problem. So if you establish that as a value driver based on history and what we know, and you get comfortable together with the fact that that marketplace, while interrupted, is not going away. People are going to continue to get their food from brick and mortar. They're going to continue to play golf. They're going to continue to do other activities. That gives you a better way than of judging the extent of the interruption of cash flow that this may have had through, of course, no, no responsibility of the entrepreneur. And this is where you bifurcate, in my view. I think the equity sees the enduring value of the proposition. And of course, they have a much different risk return equation. So I don't see equity as being the issue here. All of them get their minds around that quite easily. The issue becomes debt because the debt doesn't have the same risk return relationship as we know, and they cannot get the necessary predictable on the cash flow month by month by month. And therefore, how do they underwrite? I think what we're seeing, Andy, because coming into this fact, there was a huge amount of cash, whether it's on the balance sheets of strategics or in the portfolio or in the funds of P&E, uh, private equity, that th this cash will go to work. So what we're seeing is that the debt is going to take a little longer to get comfortable. And they're likely going to, if the in the particular segment you're in, if a classical debt structure was three times EBITDA, you're probably going to see it closer to two, one and a half, two and a half, and take longer for them to decide which puts the onus on, uh, on the private equity to over-equitize. And they do so because I think everybody has a view that normalcy, well, I don't think anybody can peg what the new normal is, it will return. And at that point in time, they can recapitalize and put on debt, which is fully expected to be even cheaper than it is now, if it can be, 
So I think they're, they're now they're getting creative too. They may ask the, the seller to put in a seller note, perhaps to take more of a rollover equity position. But it all starts with, is this an asset a good asset for up to the point of the crisis? And is, are the markets they're in, do the clients they have, and did the proposition that they're selling continue to do well in a normal marketplace? So I think that's what we're facing. I have not seen a good deal not get done. Now, the problem we're having, which is a pragmatic problem, many say, for instance, in either the strategic or private equity world are preoccupied. They may have platforms that they currently own that on a normal basis, they have a monthly meeting with, they get reports, they do a quarterly board meeting, and all of a sudden the platform's upside down. So the people who are out normally investing are now doing a lot more inside of their shop, just keeping their platforms afloat. So, you know, you've got a lot of different variables that you're vying for for attention. But as with before, and it will be in the future, I don't think smart money makes short-term decisions based on short-term problems. So summary, if you had a problematic company coming into it, and this exacerbated it, I think you ought to work on your company. If you had a strong company coming into it and you're in right markets and you got good clientele, I think you have every right to expect the value that you would have got before crises. Got it. Um, So Mark brought up an interesting point about lenders and Garth, I thought I would turn to you and just maybe you can give everyone a, a quick summary of what you've experienced in terms of lenders' ability to close on loans in the current market and what predictions do you have for their ability in the in the future? Let's call the future six to 12 months out from now. Yeah, I can I can uh, jump in and then Andy, I may kick back back to you to maybe go through some of the, the details or, or, of what you're seeing as well. I think from what I've seen, I, th- I think with, with one particular deal that we were working on, it was a software and services deal that they were working through with a private equity group. And in that case, lenders got, got concerns and just and really were more dragging their feet and wanting to wait a little bit more to see and have more insight in, into what forecastle really looked like. That was mid-February and that client in particular really focused around working with a lot of hotels. So obviously they're they're going to be impacted. It's just trying to figure out how how dramatically impacted. So that was just a situation where where they wanted to to put it on ice for a little bit. In terms of the payroll protection plan, I can touch on that as we've seen it in, in two different scenarios. Work out actually really nicely for two of our clients, in particular that client and another client that, that's focused on e-commerce solutions. And they're really looking at it as the first client was looking to to probably do some pretty significant layoffs. And this was able this enabled them not to have to do any any types of layoffs. And the way that both of these clients were thinking about it was it, it was a really, really nice cushion that they think they should be able to ride out most of the, the downturn. And hopefully they, it'll give them time to let their pipeline build back up until they have enough cash to support payroll going forward. So I think from what I've seen, that has been a nice alternative or, or a nice solution for a lot of these small, small, medium businesses, especially in the, in the tech sector. It's just giving giving them a little bit of a longer window to ride this out. So that, that's what I've got, Andy. I don't know if you had, had yeah. something to add. 
No, I think it's a good point. I also would break the world of lenders up probably into two categories. I think you have the commercial bank lenders that are traditional, I would call it commercial and industrial lenders. They're underwriting a lot of times tend to be asset-based. They're a senior secured lender. They want something they can jump in and liquidate if there's a default. And then there's private debt lenders. And those tend to fall in the, what we call mezzanine because they sit in between traditional debt and equity. And there they get more aggressive on loan terms. They typically get warrants. So they get some equity upside. And they're willing to go beyond senior secured. They're willing to get into multiples of cash flow-based lending, which means they're farther out on the risk curve. I think we're going to see a very high percentage of defaults in that space. There's been a huge growth in that category of mezzanine lending, covenant light loans, which means that the lender really doesn't have a recourse to come declare a default if they fall outside of traditional loan covenants, which means they really have to wait for the company to start defaulting on payments. And that's going to be almost inevitable if you look at the cash flows of a lot of companies that are very highly levered. I think we're going to see a range of workouts of lenders sitting down with their investors and owners and trying to come to terms with a new type of loan structure that the company can reperform on. And, you know, lenders really having to rely on those workout specialists to become their banker to decide if this is a loan that can reperform or are they better off finding a buyer for the assets through a, a bankruptcy process or some other means. Certainly the government's stepping in with the PPP program. It gets a lot of headlines, both good and bad. Probably the biggest constraint is the level of funding that's available. It's clearly not matched the level of demand. The banks are being put in a pretty tough spot of trying to navigate a program that the Treasury Department is slow to roll out and slow to clarify, but definitely puts the onus on the banks to be responsible for loans that don't meet the underwriting criteria that they allow through the process. There's another program coming down the pike. It's called the Main Street Lending Program. Um, We're going to have some more content about that on a future webinar. But that is the Federal Reserve trying to come in and stimulate lenders by offering up loan guarantees to put them at ease, essentially, at these risks that they perceive in future economic results. And especially as they see defaults piling up on their existing loans, um, you can believe they'll be very nervous about issuing new loans in this market. So that is the federal government between the PPP and the Main Street Lending Program attempting to put some government guarantees out there to help lower the uh, the loss expectations for lenders in the event of default. So that lending, I would say, in the whole debt category, it certainly applies to established companies that are large enough to attract a lending relationship, either with established cash flow or oftentimes with an equity investor who can act as like a backstop and give a lender comfort that if the company does fall in hard times, there's an equity investor who doesn't want to see their investment get wiped out. So they're incentivized to come in and either add additional equity or add their own loan guarantee or step in and make some other effort to further finance the business to help navigate it through these rocky waters. But for startups and, and early stage companies, Ben Garber, I'd be interested in your perspective. What are you seeing now as far as investors' interest level and the likelihood of traditional VCs or early stage investors being active in this market you know, over the next 60 to 90 days? Yeah, so with the volatility and the equity, the public equity market, we have absolutely seen an increase in interest and attention for private equity investors that have the opportunity to invest in longer cycles, maybe counter-cyclical or non-cyclical investments. From the immediate impact and how you're marketing your company based on what is happening to you today, we are seeing a lot of understanding and leeway 
from investors with regard to any short-term volatility in earnings and, and revenue. So like I said before, a, a lot of sales are, are pushing out. So your, your revenue growth rate you know, might be taking a hit right now. Again, focus on maintaining those client relationships. That it should be where, where your business focuses today. You absolutely get penalized if the customer disappears. Uh, but people understand today that schedules are pushing out. and They're going to want to see that you have strong client relationships. So intermediate concessions, schedule push, be flexible, whatever you can do to maintain those client relationships. That's being rewarded. And the intermediate volatility is really being adjusted out uh, because investors are buying cash flows on a go-forward basis. And they're focused on what is that long-term run rate, which is why you should really be prioritizing maintaining and strengthening these customer relationships. What it means for startup funding. So investors are still very active. I'm seeing deals get closed. Early stage investments are almost always entirely equity. So we don't have any of those debt components. But what we are seeing is a change in fund terms and dynamics. So what you can expect to see is probably smaller funding rounds, maybe 50% the size that, that you would have seen six months ago, meaningfully lower growth expectations depending on what end market you're selling into. The growth rate often impacts the multiple. Not seeing a lot of multiple compression right now, but that's that's where the, the focus will be on is, is on your growth rate and, and your end market. So again, think about where you're selling into. Is there an opportunity to switch? That also plays into the sales cycle. Seeing a lot of companies you know, kind of pivot to try and find bright spots. Seeing an increase in convertible notes to deal with this uncertainty. So think notes now with caps or discounts, possibly longer maturity dates to allow for a priced round to come in once whatever the new normal is stabilizes and people feel comfortable underwriting your growth forecast also puts additional attention on your current board and your current investors. I always say this and, and I'll continue to say it. If your board members aren't able to continue to write checks and they're not able to bring in investors to support the company today, uh, you maybe want to consider why they're on your board. So if you're an existing portfolio company, you know, look to your current investors to support you in the meantime. But then again, for bridge rounds and new rounds, uh, greater attention on convertible notes uh, with terms to allow flexibility when you go for a price round. Great. I think it's one, I'll, I'll just say in general, it's always tough to make broad sweeping generalizations about startups and early stage companies, right? They, the most notable transactions always get a lot of headlines. The truth is those are like less than 1% of all deals and certainly companies that are in that space. So I think that that's helpful perspective on the ground. And I would say, too, if you think you've got something that is uh, going to show well in this market, I think in many ways, you just expect the same questions that you would be asked in a normal performing or, or growing economy. You just need to be prepared to demonstrate why you're relevant, early traction, and why your forecasts are going to be sustainable. And, and I think circling back to some of our earlier conversation, I think there'll be some forgiveness and a slowdown. So if you have at least 12 months established, if you can point to a trend that um, was beginning to emerge prior to, let's say, February. I think you'll get some buy-in on that continuing to return maybe in the next 90 days. But for sure, people want to know that you've got a downside plan and that you have some viable opportunity if the quarantine or, or the economic slowdown does drag on longer than everyone expects. 
just to give people a, a base case or a downside case like any other investment piece. So maybe along that line, I think it'd be interested, interesting for the audience to hear a little bit about, let's say I've got a business. I think it's doing well. I think it's actually pretty well positioned. And I'm interested in doing a deal now. You know, Now would be in the next 90 days. Who have we seen that is active, that is closing deals and is showing us you know, through deal activity and communications that they're still an active buyer and, and seem to resonate? Their story seems to resonate with our sell side clients. And Garth, I'll, I'll turn to you. Can you give us some commentary on what you're seeing in the IT services space in particular? Sure. Yeah, happy to. So I think on that point, I think largely what we've heard from the strategic community, especially as it relates to to IT service focused investments. So so most of them are really are going after cloud solutions and e-commerce solutions. I'll kind of touch on trends a little bit and then move into more specifically who who's has announced some deals since this has kind of taken off. So those are two areas. I, I think another thing that we're starting to see a little bit more as organizations are really uncertain as to how long a lot of the lockdown is going to take, how how impactful it is going to be across their end clients. A lot of these IT services organizations are getting more and more interested in, in near shore capabilities. So we're seeing Latin America and Eastern Europe that firms that have delivery in those regions that are able to deliver most of, in most cases to enterprises within the, the U.S. Those are becoming more and more attractive as organizations can offload some of the workloads that they're currently delivering from maybe North American resources to uh, a Latin American or Eastern Europe or, or maybe also Indian resources that are at much lower bill rates. So that's, that's kind of another trend that we're seeing in, in some of what these big firms are looking at. I would say a lot of the firms that we are talking to, the accounting firms, big four, their sentiment is really, hey, we don't have, we're not public entities. We don't have a public stock to worry about. We are still very, very interested in doing deals. We've got enough cash sitting around to, to really go after deals aggressively. And, and in some respects, we think that some other strategics that we would typically be competing with or private equity groups that we would typically compete with may not be as comfortable and may not be able to push forward. So this is potentially a, a more or a less competitive buying opportunity. Uh, we may be able to get some things at a discount that we otherwise wouldn't. So those are organizations that we've, we're definitely hearing good things from. Accenture is another one that despite their stock has dropped, but they're still very much trying to, to close deals. They actually announced a B2B marketing transaction the first week of April and the second week of April, they announced a, a cybersecurity deal, both US-based. Cognizant announced a, a Salesforce partner that, that they acquired second, I think it was the second week of April. So those we're, we're seeing a lot of similar sentiments from the really large public IT service providers. So maybe some of the, the smaller public ones are pulling back and, and trying to focus on their own client base before they pursue too many MA opportunities. I think if they have enough cash, they're they're still going after deals. That's largely largely what we're seeing across the board. That's a good point, and uh, maybe just a minor deal point, but something maybe people find interesting for publicly traded companies. Oftentimes, as they use stock as a form of currency, built into the amount of stock that a seller is going to receive is an adjustment based on trailing number of days, average closing daily, for example, thirty days trailing closing price of the stock. So when you're in a very term, turbulent time like we are now, 
you're, there's no incentive to try to time the closing of the deal to catch the stock on an up or a downswing. By using the average price, you tend to quiet down some of the noise and it hopefully removes the incentive to delay or accelerate a deal based on where the stock has to be trading that day. So looking at the clock, we're coming up at 1.30 Eastern. So I, I will wrap this up by first thanking our audience for their time and participation, um, both through the questions in advance and while the conversation was going on. So we, we hope we address everyone's question. I know there were some that were left unanswered just in the interest of time. We couldn't get to everything. If anything else came up, feel free to email us. I posted our contact email address. Or if you're already in contact with someone at Seven Mile, please reach out to them directly. We hope you found this informative. We will continue to have some discussions through this format, through podcasts, through blog posts. So we'll try to keep it topical. But as we go through what is clearly a very deep and uncharted waters here in the market, we're hopeful that us providing feedback on what we're actually seeing on the ground and summarizing experience from both from our clients and from relationships that we have in the market so we can give people some clarity and some guidance on how to be prepared for opportunities going forward. So thanks again, everyone. We appreciate it. And we will hopefully talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 